This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture X Card. Earn unlimited 2X miles on everything you buy. Plus, get access to a $300 annual credit for bookings through Capital One Travel. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. What happens to police officers who get caught stealing, lying, or tampering with evidence? Each week, we open up an internal affairs investigation that used to be secret to find out how well the police police themselves. Listen to On Our Watch, a podcast from NPR and KQED. From NPR Music, this is Alt Latino. I'm Felix Contreras. It's time for another Alt-Latino news magazine show. This week we have four stories that will introduce you to an artist that maybe you didn't know about. It'll also give you insight into the Cuban diaspora here in Washington, D.C., and we'll give you a preview of next week's Alt-Latino podcast in which we explore the African heritage of the Central American country of Honduras. But we start with a news report about the vaccine rollout here in the U.S. and how it has impacted one heavily Latino-populated community here in suburban Washington, D.C. Just this week, President Joe Biden announced a major vaccine effort aimed at black and brown communities in the U.S. In particular, he says black barbershops and neighborhoods could become vaccine sites. In suburban Washington, D.C., there is a group of women that is already doing outreach to Spanish-speaking communities, and they have earned a nickname for their efforts. Alt-Latino contributor Marisa Arbona Ruiz introduces us to Las Casa Vacunas, or the Vaccine Hunters. How are you feeling? Uh, I'm nervous. I don't like needles. Oh, my God. It's it's so easy. I had both of them, and I was just like, <gasps> and it was over. And I was like, oh, my God, please wait. And they're like, it's over. You can stop. That's why That's why I have this this man. He's, yeah, that's why I have him. Dylan Cienfuegos and his dad, David, have arrived at this makeshift COVID vaccination clinic in Silver Spring, Maryland, to make sure the virus doesn't threaten their family again. Has either of you had COVID? I did. Uh, I was in the hospital for about two weeks. It was was a trying two weeks. (laughs) I don't like hospitals. I don't want to do that again. I would say no, because I tested negative, but I did have to take care of him and cook food for him. Yeah. So. so. And what was that like? Uh, I felt like a nanny. I, I had to clean the house, make food, yell at him through a door, make sure he was fine. And were you worried about his life? Uh, I was really worried once he, uh, once he had to get sent to the hospital. The Cienfuegos are here at this pop-up clinic because of a silver lining in the dark cloud that is the pandemic. A group of women who call themselves the Vaccine Hunters, or Las Casavacunas. Their story starts during the first phase of the vaccine rollout in late January, when a small group of high school teachers were helping each other to find out where and how to get the vaccines as essential workers. Macy Lynch was posting location information on her Facebook page. Well, it really wasn't intentional. (laughs) Like I was learning how you make appointments and I started making appointments for friends and people started reaching out. And then I woke up on a Sunday morning and I was like, oh my gosh, there are so many people that want help. I can't help all these people. So I reached out to some educators that I know that I knew they had also been doing the same thing. I put a group text together and said, hey, do you think you'd be willing to help me make some appointments for people? 
And they were all like, sure, sure. And by the end of the day, we had built a spreadsheet sharing information about places that you could register at. We had a Facebook page. And then everything just sort of exploded from there. The group's nickname came to be as their friends and colleagues asked them to hunt down vaccines for them. The name, my sister keeps taking claim for the name. She's like, Macy, I know I said vaccine hunters. And I was like, I don't know, maybe you did. And so, but it was that day. It was a Sunday morning. I mean, we all laugh. We still bring it up here, you know, that I'm always apologizing to them for dragging them into all of this. <laughs> Hello, my name's Maria Peterson. I'm a vaccine hunter. We are all friends of Macy. Macy was the one who came up with the idea, and she approached one of her friends, me. Then she approached another of her friends, Tanya. Then she approached another of her friend, Courtney, and so on. And she did that seven times. So that's how the eight of us became to be. What we have in common is we're all teachers in the same school system. And that's how it all started. You know, her with the idea of let's help people find appointments. Let's spread the work because it was a lot for one person to do. So each of us got assigned a specific hospital or clinic in the county to find appointments because they were very difficult to find at that point. After realizing how complicated it was for others to make vaccine appointments, the vaccine hunters also turned their attention to helping seniors in their communities. And that's when they had an eye-opening moment. A lot of the people that were reaching out to us were white, middle-class folks who were connected in some way to us. And we all kind of said, wait a second here, there is a disparity here. I mean, we had been on-site at clinics and we could see the faces that were there and we could see that there wasn't a lot of black and brown faces in the crowd. And we said, you know, we could really be putting our efforts towards helping to bridge this gap that's happening. There was a need to get our underserved communities vaccinated, especially because they're the ones that have been hardest hit by COVID. As the vaccine hunters learned of barriers to access, like challenges with transportation, technology, unpaid leave, and language differences, they also uncovered poorly translated forms and a lack of cultural competency throughout the rollout. They became accidental advocates, helping wherever and whenever they can. This is Tanya Perez Fuentes. We all are mothers, we all are teachers. There's been days where we're just so tired and we're like, wait a second, that one person that we're getting the appointment for, this is that person's lives. I had a mother thank me yesterday. She had a five-month preemie that is still hospitalized two months, and the doctors are limiting her time because she's not vaccinated. And so she's vaccinated now, and she said, I get to spend more time with my son in the hospital. And, and so stories like that that I'm just like, there's no way we're going to stop until we really see that everyone that we can reach has been vaccinated. Iris Argueta is the communications director at the Washington Spanish Bilingual Seventh-day Adventist Church in Silver Spring, Maryland, where the vaccine hunters set up what was their first pop-up clinic. Many of our church members and community people that were visiting our church or sending messages on Facebook were telling us that they didn't feel comfortable going to, you know, the local mass vaccination sites. Number one, because many of them didn't know how to fill out the paperwork or intimidated by showing documents. They were concerned about that. So our pastor opened the idea, well, let's try to get a vaccination clinic in the church. And that's what we did. And thank God for the vaccine hunters because they reached out and they said, we can do it, we can help you. And then Holy Cross came on board. So it's been a really the alliance of a whole community village coming together to help out the people. We reached out not only to our membership, but to the churches nearby, the Pentecostal churches, the Catholic churches, 
and the Muslim churches and also the Ethiopian African churches in the community. The vaccine hunter's work has become a calling. I just couldn't fathom other people being desperate the way I was to get my mom vaccinated. And I knew that whether it was at a small, very small scale, that if I could just help a couple community members, I knew that it was going to be impactful for that person. A couple community members. <laughs> and and we're up to, what, 8,000-something now? We're past 8,000 now. Since the time of this interview, the vaccine hunters say the number is well over 20,000. And that impresses even local government. My reaction to them was, we've been waiting. Hans Riemer is a Montgomery County Council member at large, one of whom presented them with a proclamation recognizing their work. This is what we've needed. The county government, we've, it's been kind of a marathon to get here. And I'm afraid that if it's just the county government, trying to get the word out and trying to book appointments and trying to bring the community in for vaccinations, we're never going to cross the finish line. They are solving just a critical piece of the puzzle for, for us. This is one of the finest examples of community leadership that I've seen in my time with the council. I think we have to learn this lesson that we have to build in from the very beginning language proficiency and cultural competency into our rollout. Unfortunately, a lot of these critical elements of a successful campaign were an afterthought. There's a real lesson here, you know, that all aspects of government have to be thought through and equity and cultural lens and, and a framework and you have to know, you have to execute everything equally for everyone. You know, you can't, it's not enough to have a vaccination campaign for people who speak English well. Like that, that's not going to work. It, it, a, it'll leave out a lot of people and B, it won't correct the pandemic. The vaccine hunters have not only been taking on the challenge of getting people vaccinated, they have also been standing up to what they consider cases of discrimination. Maria Peterson tells the story of a Salvadoran woman who took her father to his vaccination appointment at a national chain pharmacy where he was refused. When she came in, she said there was no eye contact. They didn't even offer her to have a seat and while she waited. In fact, they even told her, um, do, you, do you need to go grocery shopping? You want to go do something? And she was like, no, I'm, I'm standing here. I'm, I'm good. Because they made her wait an hour. It was awful that they made her wait an hour, but at the same time, it was good. They made her wait an hour because for that whole hour, she saw the interaction. She was seeing people come in, being treated properly, being treated with courtesy. And then she saw how other Latino, especially that other couple she saw, was been treated with the indifference and just lack of compassion and empathy. And that's what she observed, sadly. And you're gonna do fine, and here you go. One, two, three, boom, you're done. Oh, that was, the, oh, that was so slight. Okay, oh, that did not hurt. That. that did not hurt, okay. Back at the clinic, Dylan Cienfuegos is another success story for the vaccine hunters, who say they don't plan on stopping anytime soon. And for Macy Lynch, their tireless crusade is just like that age-old proverb. You can either fish for someone or you can teach them how to fish. And like, and so for us, setting up these clinics within communities, and maybe next time this church or, you know, two or three times from now, they can do their own clinic and we don't have to be here helping. So that's sort of our goal is to be able to get people up and running and then be able to move and, and get into another community that needs it. Reporting for Alt Latino, I'm Marisa Arbona Ruiz.
At the end of May, Las Casas Vacunas were part of hashtag VaxFest 2021, the kickoff of a national campaign meant to improve vaccine access and participation and was largely inspired by the success of their own work. Alt-Latino contributor Marisa Arbona Ruiz first reported this story on Palabra, a digital publication from the National Association of Hispanic Journalists, where you can read the full story at palabranahj.org. You are listening to Alt-Latino and our spring news magazine show. Next up, NPR producer Isabella Gomez Sarmiento introduces us to one of her favorite artists, the Uruguayan singer-songwriter Juan Waters, who gives us a glimpse into the process of making his latest album, Real Life Situations. Juan Waters used to tour a lot, and he noticed something about the way we listen to music when we travel. Let's say you're in New York, and then you go to Mexico City, you go with your phone, and then you put, you put on your Spotify. The Spotify will most likely remain the same, you will listen to the same songs as you travel, you know what I mean? Because it will give you the songs you like, right? Whereas I've learned that traveling with a little radio, you can tune in to the local sound. If you go to Paris, let's say, okay, you listen to people talking French on the radio. And I just like to put it on, put on the radio wherever, wherever I go, and listen to uh, people talk in that uh, native tongue and uh, listen to the songs they would listen to in that country. For his last two albums, the musician from Uruguay plugged into the sounds of Latin America, like this song inspired by the metro in Mexico City. Entre un carnicero electricista, un carpintero, un relojero, me paré un momento a hablarle al que vende los But on his new record, called Real Life Situations, Waters takes on the radio a bit more literally. Yeah, I guess I wanted to paint some kind of radio listening experience, that going through the dial and uh, hopping from genres and uh, listening to someone talk and then going back to another song and then a little of a uh, news clip, you know, and back to another song. The album is punctuated by a variety of interludes, like this opening. that history's ever created. I'm not committed to nonviolence in any way. I'm listening to this closely. I use my phone to record uh, sound all the time. And uh, then I have a collection of things in my phone, of things I've recorded throughout my life. And beyond that, Real Life Situations finds Waters experimenting with sounds that differ from his previous acoustic guitar-heavy work. In fact, even the inspiration for the title comes from a brand new direction, Southern hip-hop. During the lockdown, I don't know, some, somehow I gravitated towards Outkast, and there's a song in there that uh, uses that phrase, uh, real-life situations. He's referring to Spodiote Dopalicious from the Aquemini album. One moment you frequent the booty clubs, and the next four years you and somebody daughter raising your own young young. Now that's a beautiful thing. That's if you're on top of your game and man enough to handle real-life situations, that is. So I thought, uh, I thought that was a beautiful phrase. And it applies to the way he made the record. The way we did the album was very uh, natural. There were, there were a lot of collaborations with friends that uh, happened uh, pretty much uh, casually. I wanted to uh, bring up that aspect of the 
album making and the album itself that has uh, something that I see as reality. That's how the song Unity with Cola Boy came about. Definitely the one that uh, differs the most from my previous work, I think, is uh, the one called Unity that I did with Cola Boy. Because that one is pretty much like a straight up uh, our own version, sick version of like uh, of like a hip hop song or something, but it's nothing like that. I gravitated towards the guitar when I started playing music, so I never really uh, recorded that type of music seriously. I, ha I had produced rappers in my neighborhood, let's say, but I had never like sang myself anything like that. Irreplaceable, irreversible, a rebel. Water says he worked with more North American collaborators on this album, which could explain that variance in genres. But real-life situations also finds the musician flexing the muscle he's built throughout his career, finding the pleasures of a simple scene like listening to music or brushing your hair. He does exactly that on the song Estás Escuchando, which he wrote con el David Aguilar. I had noticed, and uh, listening to his music, that he was a really good whistler. So the first thing I thought when we were going to make a song together, uh, I thought we should take advantage of that, of having a, such a good whistler. He remembered a song by Nerd, the group Pharrell was in, that used whistling in the hook. Yeah. So I thought it'd be cool to write a hook that is the whistle, and within the, the hook, within the whistling parts, we write verses. We were in the same city, but I guess we were uh, anxious to write the song, so we started writing it over WhatsApp. <laughs> and uh, I sent him a little uh, audio clip of me playing the guitar chords and whistling. And then right away he sent back uh, uh, two verses. We fit them between the whistles. And then I wrote that part B, that that's, would be the chorus. The flute solo would come later in 2020. But this is mainly a pre-COVID record. Most of the collaborations on real-life situations had already been recorded when the pandemic got serious. Feeling pretty stressed about the state of the world, Waters put the material aside for a few months. But there's one song he did write during lockdown. It's during like a, a month into quarantine and it talks about the experience of a person inside a house uh, and they can go out the house and they think of uh, having a sexual ex experience but you know they, they don't have contact with the outside world so there's no contact with people. <laughs> they think of, uh, they look out the windows, there, there's no one. They, they think about uh, other families in the neighborhood 
which uh, they might not be able to go to work and they have kids and the government doesn't send them money because they're undocumented. He resumed work on real life situations last May and finished through the summer. It was a much longer process for someone who put out two full length albums in 2019. I mean, I didn't work at the same pace I would have worked if we had been touring or something when times are a little uh, tighter. Up until today, it feels like the world is moving slower, I feel, than before. Luckily, because we were coming too fast, I thought. Now, looking back, I'm very happy that uh, we stopped a little bit. I feel like things were moving too fast. He's still planning to record another album this summer, but he says he's learned to be in the moment more. And that's kind of what real-life situations feels like. Taking a moment to slow down, turn on the radio, and just listen. Isabela Gomez Sarmiento, Alt Latino, Washington. This is Alt Latino. I'm Felix Contreras, and you're listening to our Spring News Magazine show. The Washington, D.C. area is home to many Latino communities, and our next story is about a small group of Cuban musicians and artists who have made the area their home. I spoke with filmmaker Josie Mulavi about her short documentary, Soñando Afrocuba, or Dreaming of Afrocuba, a film that shows how the pandemic shut down their weekly rumbas in a public park, a communal activity that kept them close to their Afro-Cuban culture. First of all, tell me what inspired you to make this movie? So I was in school at the time and I was in a class where I was doing an independent study, making a backpack documentary. So doing the whole thing myself, producing it, writing it, editing it, filming it. And I went to the professor's office hours to just sort of talk and not really um, having any idea what I was going to make my film about. And he ended up showing me the artwork of Lazaro Batista, who's the f main figure in the film. And he said, you know, I think this guy's got a really cool story. You should talk to him and check it out. And I've always been interested in talking to artists. And as a musician myself, I love seeing what kind of uh, inspiration artists have behind their work and why they make their work. So I called him up and we met up for coffee on 18th Street um, in D.C. And he told me basically his entire life story. And I said, whoa, 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 let me get my camera rolling. And then, you know, I went to his uh, home, which he has his little studio in, in a one-room uh, apartment. And yeah, he, he really un unfolded this whole world of Afro-Cuban heritage and art and music for me. In choosing Lázaro, you chose a very interesting aspect of the Latino community here in, the, in Washington because the majority of the Latino community is from Central America, El Salvador, uh, Guatemala, Honduras. There is a Cuban expatriate community here, but not a very big one. So it it's, would make sense that he was connected to musicians and other people beyond his uh, visual artistic realm. How was it that you were able to trace that and follow that through your film work? Yeah, so originally, uh, as most stories do, it started with one contact, right? My professor actually, um, his wife is from Cuba, so she knew the artist. They had art in his home. So Lazaro, you know, I, I came across him and then I said, hey, who do you know? And he said, uh, 
I'll show you and come to this event. And I ended up going to Busboys and Poets where they were having um, an event for the DC Afro-Latino Caucus, which is an extension of the mayor's office. Uh, so it's a great community of a lot of Cubans, a lot of people from uh, the Dominican Republic, Puerto Ricans, um, and just in general across the, Af the Latino diaspora. And they all came together in this big celebratory night and there was dancing and food. And of course, Lazaro was selling his art there. And I met uh, Roberto Dominic there, who I didn't know I was going to include in the film, but later went on to include him in the film. So from there, I met a bunch of different characters and I really got sort of roped into understanding what it means to be a minority minority community because yeah Salvadorans, Guatemalans, Hondurans tend to be the majority here in DC for whatever reason. Um, they came here and they have really established roots here I would say especially in the Mount Pleasant Columbia Heights areas but Cubans it's a bit different. I would say that their community is very tight-knit and close and it was really cool to kind of see the inner workings of that. What kind of insight do you think your film gives into the Afro-Cuban community here, specifically in D.C., but then in general? The thing about um, Afro-Cuban culture is that in the name, it is Afro-Cuban and it's not just exclusively Cuban. So there's a really cool aspect of it that comes from traditional heritage from Africa. In this film, Lazaro says that his art is really inspired by and brings to the table work of his ancestors, right? So whether it be Santeria, which is like a traditional religious practice, or um, the drumming, which is really an important principal staple in Afro-Cuban culture, in communication, in, you know, expression in music and whatever it might be. So the film does focus specifically on Afro-Cubans because um, that's who I met, you know, that's who I came across. And I know that there's a lot of different kinds of people that come from Cuba and some, you know, might be of a different background from them. But I really got the opportunity to zero in on this really kind of niche subset of Cuban culture, which is the Afro-Cuban experience um, by people who practice it in their everyday and who live it even so far from the island. So that's what I thought was most interesting. My film gives a lot of insight into what it's like to live this experience and this culture apart from the island, which so influences it, right? So of course, there's not by any means the multitude of Afro-Latino or Afro-Cuban happenings here in DC that there might be, you know, on the island of Cuba in Havana, like where they're from. But still, they keep it alive uh, through things like drum circles or through these events or, you know, just through drumming and practicing the music or making art with it. So so that's what I thought was cool. The film starts just before the lockdown here in the D.C. area for the pandemic. Um, and what's, what was striking to me when I first heard about this film and the idea was that traditional Afro-Cuban drumming is community-oriented. You need the three guys, or usually guys, unfortunately, but you need the three people to put together what's called group of rumberos, right, with the three different parts, and then guy playing sticks and bells and yeah, clave yeah. and everything else. You need a community. So whenever that community was locked down because of the pandemic, it shut everything down. You can't create that music without a community. Exactly. How did you tap into that for your film? So um, I started f the film and I just was focusing on Lazaro, right? So I was doing a profile piece and I didn't know that it would take me much further. But of course, when I went to this event at Busboys uh, back in February of 2020, so right before everything sort of shut down, 
Um, it was just this vibrant event. And of course there were so many musicians and all of them were pretty much Afro-Cuban. So I was, you know, bringing my camera over to them, showing the liveliness and everything, not knowing that those were the very people that were going to be some of the most affected by the pandemic and make quite an interesting story looking back and juxtaposing it with, for example, there's a point in the film where in the progression of time, you see Roberto playing his song Chupi Chacha, um, which I guess is his famous. That's what he told me. Um, yeah, he is playing that with his buddies and they're all on stage and, you know, there's multiple people. Everyone's dancing. They're having a great time. And you just see it sort of fade into just him at the park playing on a cajon that Lazaro built from a box he found on the street. Like, you know, and not with, you know, the congas and the tumbadoras and everybody lined up in their parts. And it was really sad because not just just a year later, you know, I come back and I see this celebration that I saw once in February of 2020, uh, so vibrant and so beautiful and so lively um, and so expressive of the culture is sort of reduced to like a one man show. And though it's still in there, you know, you can tell they still have the heart for it. I think it really tells the resilience of musicians in, in specific and, and just people with art um, in them. It's uh, it's really beautiful to see that that is the thing that keeps you pushing. That is the thing that keeps you going. Um, and I think people can relate to that. You know, what what was it during the pandemic that kept you going? And for these guys, it was really like, I know that I'll be able to play one day. And I know if I keep my playing up and, you know, I'll, I'll be able to play again. And and you do see them play again, you know, in, in the later stages of the pandemic. Right. Things are starting to open up. Uh, you know, the Malcolm X Park. Uh, drum circle came back which is really beautiful and I got to spend some time out there with the guys um, all drumming there which is not just Cubans it's literally everybody and anybody who wants to bring something to to hit on <laughs> so it was really cool to see them come back from that and be in the community once again in a different way but still this is your first film this is my first official film, I would say. I graduated from American University in May of 2020, which is, of course, a great time to graduate, I guess, for <laughs> for all intents and purposes. Yeah, um, and I had made a film for a class before, and this was my second endeavor. So um, I would say this one is the one that I've really poured a lot of my time, energy, my heart and soul into. And of course, it took over a year to make. Um, countless edits, countless versions, and a lot of coordination and really getting to know the guys that I was working with. Let me ask you a question about you specifically. What is it about filmmaking? What draws you to filmmaking? And why did you decide to become a filmmaker and study it in school? I don't know what it was when I was little. Maybe I just liked being in control of the narrative. Maybe I just liked to see, um, you know, how I could make movies I don't know what it was but when I was younger I was so into movies so I had a little flip camera and I would edit on iMovie on my parents Mac and I would just sit there and and make my brother you know walk around or do whatever and I would just chop it together and I put it on YouTube and if you really do a deep dive I'm sure you could find some pretty embarrassing stuff up there <laughs> from like the 2000s of me and my brother um, but anyway as I got older I sort of phased out of it and I wasn't super into it but something that I've always had as a part of my personality is that I love to ask questions so my friends and my family quite think it's quite annoying at this point I think but if I meet a new person I really want to pick their brain and understand what makes them tick and the idea that I could 
sort of share those stories in a way that was visual, that was audio, right? Because I'm a musician. I love um, to show the audio, but also the visual. And once I got my uh, way with working with a camera, like once I got my hands on a camera, um, the big boy cameras, like uh, the ones that university uses, which are the huge ones that they use for like news. And I, and I got my hands on that. And Putting the camera in between you and somebody can be intimidating, but if you learn to work around it, it's um, really a beautiful way to connect with somebody. And if you get things on camera and you can share them with people, it gives people insight into a community that they might not have ever heard about. Like people watching this documentary probably will never in their lives or would have never in their lives talked to somebody like Lazaro or Roberto but now they get a chance to really see firsthand what it is. So that's what I like most about it. What's also interesting to me about your film work and this particular film is that it's insight into a particular part of the Latino community, but you don't come from a Latino community. You come from a different community altogether. Talk to me a little bit about your own background and then maybe what intrigued you about this particular community. So I get this question a lot because I speak Spanish, but I'm not Latina. And so it's it's sort of like a double take, like, wait, what? Because I kind of look like I could be Latina, right? I get that a lot. But my family's from Iran, um, at least my dad's side is, and my mom's side's from, from here, from, uh, you know, this area. And so when I was younger, I didn't grow up with Farsi in the house, which was the language, but I knew that I had um, an interest in language and I started studying Spanish in middle school because my mom told me it might be a really great way um, to, you know, connect with other people. And a lot of people just saw Spanish as a prerequisite, but I really saw it as a bridge to life, like a bridge to knowledge, a bridge to connection with others. And I have at a young age already traveled to a lot of different places in the Spanish-speaking world. Um, I've lived in Madrid, and I've gotten the opportunity to connect with people that I never would have been able to have even half a conversation with if I didn't speak the language. So as someone who, at a young age, was given the tools to sort of tap into this community and this world apart from my own, it's always been really intriguing to me, you know, as an outsider looking in, to do the best that I can to really get to know people and be on the ground with them and, you know, talking to them about what their lives are about and so it was kind of like an out of the classroom into the world moment for me because I did learn Spanish in school but I've learned more Spanish and learned more about the Spanish-speaking world and, and those who live in it uh, from filmmaking and from being outside of the classroom than I ever learned in it so and of course coming from an immigrant background the immigrant experience is really really amazing to me. Nonfiction film is a powerful powerful medium, powerful tool. Uh, it can affect change and, and has in so many ways in, in the past. And you, you seem to be on a path toward making a home for yourself in that world. So given that you're just starting out, uh, we want to wish you the best of luck and lots of success in that, in that world. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I would really love to continue to make films and to continue to meet people whose stories deserve to see the light of day and to really be shared with a wider audience. And um, I want to be one of the people, you know, that has both the skills and the heart to kind of go to those people and be like, how can I help you make this happen? And how can I help you spread this? So that's what calls me to it the most.
The interview with Josie Malavi was also a collaboration with the NHJ Palabra website. You can view her film at palabranahj.org. And finally, we want to give you a preview of next week's Alt Latino. The Garifuna community of Honduras is an Afro-Indigenous population that was exiled to the country from the island of St. Vincent in the 18th century. And musician Aurelio Martinez is one of the most well-known musicians who has taken their music beyond their home country to many parts of the world. And now Martinez is working to make sure his life's work in the Garifuna culture has a solid future. In this excerpt, we talk to Aurelio Martinez and also New York City-based musician Eleanor Dubinsky and a young musician from Honduras named John Pastor. They share their experiences of a virtual Garifuna songwriting class. Why did you start the project to teach young people how to write music in your language and about your culture? That's important for me because um, we have to keep alive our tradition. So in my language, so we don't have a, we don't have many, many artists doing this this culture, and uh, we don't have too much proud around our culture. Because you know we have a lot of discrimination in this country, and uh, around the indigenous and the black community, so uh, it's important for me to teach in in our language, and in uh, about our tradition, because uh, I know how the, the powerful is uh, this culture, and uh, it's the essence of 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 something happened. And in America, you know, Garifuna, the African culture, we lose the African tradition in America. So in Honduras, in Central America, the Garifuna, the Garifuna culture is going to be the, the last thing we have in the African Afro-descendant. So it's important to keep alive this tradition. So teaching to young people is going to be the best way to keep alive our tradition. When did you, as an artist, decide to dedicate your life and your music to preserving and promoting your history and your culture? I have three languages. First Garifuna, then Spanish, and then music. I don't know when I start to talk and speak Garifuna or Spanish or music. I grew up playing and singing. And then when I was half three, 14 years old, I, I moved my life to go up to the bigger city like Alaseba. And, um, I found out there we don't have people trying to talk in our language. We don't have, a, even my, 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 my brother and sister, uh, she, she don't like to talk about and Garifuna language because, you know, he, he like, you know, he feel the discrimination when, when people listen to you talking in your own language. So in this time I, I decide, I say to my brother, you know, if you don't want to talk Garifuna with me, bye-bye, see you. I wanna talk in my own language. This is the, maybe the first time I, I decide to be proud of around who we, who I am. So it's in the, in the city, you know, in the city, in a bigger city. Because when, I, when, I, when you come, people can't talk in your language. People don't have proud to talk in their own language, how to, how to be in Spanish. And uh, I say, no, no, I have to keep my, my tradition alive. I have to talk in my language. You can hear more about that story in next week's Alt Latino. 
My thanks to Isabella Gomez Sarmiento and Marisa Armona Ruiz. Thank you so much for your stories. Also, my thanks to the digital publication Palabra from the National Association of Hispanic Journalists. You can find them at palabranahj.org. I want to let you know the music you've been listening to is by David Shulman and Quiet Life Motel. The track is called Cowboy Cumbia. You have been listening to Alt Latino from NPR Music. I'm Felix Contreras. As always, thank you so much for listening. And please be careful out there, folks. Vax up, just like the vaccine hunters want you to do. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. This message comes from NPR sponsor, VCU Massey Comprehensive Cancer Center. Every year, millions of people lose someone to cancer. But as an NCI-designated Comprehensive Cancer Center ranked in the country's top 4%, VCU Massey Comprehensive Cancer Center is unrelenting in finding new ways to understand, detect, treat, and prevent cancer, unconditionally committed to keeping loved ones in their lives. Learn more at MasseyCancerCenter.org comprehensive. The Embedded Podcast brings you eye-opening reporting. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Immersive journalism. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Personal stories. I was scared. Like, I can't protect you. We are NPR's home for documentary storytelling. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts.